what's interesting is that today we're actually looking at a passage that is, um, the church is kind of where we left off last week, is kind of starting to do one of these, it's kind of starting to split, and the split is over something that shouldn't be a problem, shouldn't split the church. We should agree on what the gospel is, we shouldn't be moving forward, but yet there's a, the church that's back in Jerusalem is starting to go in one direction, and the church that's in Galatia is going in a different direction, and then you start to see some of the, the stuff happening in Jerusalem that feeds its way into the church in Galatia, and the Galatian church starts to go down a bad path that's kind of following that. And what you're ending up, really what's ending up happening is you're almost ending up with two separate churches, one that would be for Jewish people and one that would be for non-Jewish people. That's essentially the problem. And Paul is fighting as hard as he can to bring those back together. He's saying the beauty of the gospel is that it divides the the, it, it destroys the wall of division within the church, and everybody should be able to be together um, and live in harmony. Understanding what we're doing here is more important than any one of our personal preferences. And so he's trying to do that. And I've been thinking about a lot about this, that like, you know, there's, sometimes we can read Scripture and we can actually start to think that was a problem for them back there, but we're in danger, okay? We're in danger of having a church of people who are, you know, here in person and a church of people who are at home. Right, we're in danger of having um, a church of all one side of the political spectrum or all the other side of the political spectrum. There's a couple of things that are happening in our world right now that are threatening to kind of divide the church. I had a conversation with somebody last week who uh, you know, was lamenting that their, their small group wasn't homogenous enough politically. And I said, I just want you to know like you, that's, we're never going to be that church for you. That as far as it goes, we're going to try to unify people around the gospel. We're not going to have a politics test to see if they fit or qualify. We're going to try to unify people around the gospel. We're not going to have a, uh, you know, on a, a how uh, careful are you because of COVID uh, pre-test to see if you qualify. We're going to do everything we can to bring those two groups together. Uh, and that's the situation we're looking at today as we get into chapter 2, is that this, the, this church is starting to kind of split into two directions. It's sort of the Jews are saying it's Jesus, the gospel, plus some of these clean, you know, clean laws from the Old Testament, things like you know, your dietary restrictions, the way that you dress, the, you know, the, the issue of circumcision, which was obviously an identifier for uh, Jewish people in that day. And they're saying it's the gospel and Jesus plus this stuff. And then there's this other version of the church that Paul has been creating in a non-Jewish land where all of these people are accepting Jesus, receiving the Holy Spirit, and they aren't following any of the Jewish customs that go along with what is uh, sneaking into the church in Jerusalem. And so this church is starting to go like this. It's starting to go, here's the Jewish version, and here's the non-Jewish version. Okay, And that's the backdrop of what we're picking up today in Galatians chapter 2. So, if you didn't listen to Galatians chapter 1 sermon last week, we actually lost the entire video. We had redundancies on redundancies all fail at the same time, which is, I'm sure, what we're struggling with right now, too. Um, by the way, if anyone has a Verizon Unlimited account, we would love to add a 5G hotspot to your account for under $50 a month that we would pay for and love to have that would actually do us a much better job than the crap that we have. Uh, we've been trying to piece together. So... Call me after, talk to me about adding that to your plan. But um, anyways, I digress. Uh, we're going to pick this story up here with uh, Paul explaining to them that obviously last week the gospel is first and foremost. Oh, I was telling you, I re-recorded that sermon this week on, on a podcast. So you can still listen to it. I think it was good. I don't know. Um, 
All right, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. He says, then, after 14 years, what's he talking about? Well, he took, when he accepted Christ, he took three years, went to Arabia. He stopped off in Jerusalem. He met Peter. He loves Peter, thinks, looks up to Peter. Peter is the guy, right? Paul says, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to go to Antioch, and I'm going to make a church in Antioch, and then I'm going to reach the area of Galatia. And so he's saying, essentially, he spent 14 years working at the church in Antioch uh, before this moment that we're finding himself here. So it's about 17 years since uh, Paul has received Christ, has had that encounter with Jesus and had his life, life changed. Okay, So he says, after 14 years, I went again up to Jerusalem. This is the second time he's been in Jerusalem only. This time, I took Barnabas. I also took Titus. So uh, just to give you a perspective, during those 14 years, the church in Jerusalem had heard about Paul, and they were like, what's going on? Let me go check out the church. They sent Barnabas out to take a look at what was going on in Antioch. Barnabas shows up, and he's like, this church is awesome. I love what's happening here. I totally am for what they're doing. This is great. You guys are doing this amazingly well. Somehow you have tons of people who aren't Jewish, and tons of people are Jewish, and this is just one awesome, big, cool church this is working, right? And so Barnabas sticks around, spends time. By the way, Barnabas is also, this, this is concurrently happening with Acts chapter 1 through 15. If you're reading that part of it, it's giving you the other side of the like, historical story. Uh, Barnabas comes, on, <laughs> comes onto the scene because he uh, takes one of his fields, sells it, and then donates the money to the church. He's an incredibly generous guy. He's known as um, the son of encouragement. He's basically a brother. He's the kind of guy you want with you when you go on a long journey. He is, uh, who's Frodo's buddy? Uh, he's Sam. This guy is Sam. You want him. You want him there. When times are getting tough, when things are going bad, Barnabas is your guy. All right? He's there to pump you up, to give you the encouragement you need. Uh, you know, and so he comes out, hangs out in, in Antioch with Paul. They go 14 years in ministry together. Um, or Barnabas is in there for a couple of those years. Paul's there for 14. So Paul takes Barnabas and Titus. Titus was his second-hand man. He's a Greek guy, uh, not Jewish. He was basically um, an interpreter, a scribe, uh, Paul's second-in-command, basically. Everywhere he went, Titus was with him. He's his guy. So the three of them decide to go to Jerusalem. Why are they going to Jerusalem? He says, I went in response to a revelation Meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. So he went up to see Peter, James, John. Okay, so what we have here is a Bible study with Peter, James, John, Titus, Barnabas, and Paul. That would be an intimidating Bible study to show up to. You would be like, I have studied the Bible my whole life, and I don't think I understand anything. Like, I'm very, this is intimidating. These dudes are intense. All of them are intense. Think about this. James and Peter and Paul are like the three most intense people in the Bible. And then you've got Barnabas over there like, good job, guys. You can do it, right? <laughs> Titus is like, I'm going to be over here. Leave me alone, right? So they have a Bible study together, thrilling material on circumcision. <laughs> you cannot make this up. Um, and they get together to decide what is the story. How Jewish do you need to become to be a Christian? And today we don't really fight over that because they had the fight then. As the church was starting to split and going in two different directions, they said, let's get together, let's lead, let's make a decision, let's communicate this to everyone, let's make sure everyone's on the same page. We're not going to please everybody, but we're going to make a decision that is as consistent with the gospel as possible, that lets as many people in, that shows as much grace as possible, that does everything that they can to reach as many people for Jesus as possible. That's their goal. It is not easy to be a leader in a church sometimes. 
There are times where you have very strong opinions on one side or the other, and you have to find a way to bring a coalition of people together to decide on what God's word is saying, let it lead you, and then lead people out of the confusion and into unity. And that's what's happening here. You can actually read that whole story in Acts chapter 15, and it's pretty inspiring. So he says, I went up to see them. I wanted to share with them the gospel that I preach. And here's the important part. He says, I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. He says, maybe I have it wrong. It's possible I'm wrong. Like going into a situation like that, it takes a level of humility to say, I don't have it all figured out, right? When you're a leader and you're seeking for the truth and you're looking at God's word and you're listening to what other you know, wise people have to say, it's possible you are the one that's wrong. And often I uh, you know, am in a church planting network where I'm working with newer, younger church planters, which is funny to think about since we're only a little over two years old. But there are a bunch who are getting started who are just re- really getting started. And we're having conversations. And I'll find myself uh, asking them questions about like, them dreaming about their church and thinking about what's going to be different about it. It's going to be different than anything that's ever existed. And I'm like, listen, if it's different than anything that's ever existed, there's a good possibility you're doing it wrong. Like, we, it hasn't changed that much in 2,000 years. We've, everything's been tried. We know what works, what doesn't. I go, here's a, a pathway forward. Now, is your church going to look different based on where it's located, based on reaching the people that are around that church? Absolutely. Every one of those, every single church that we plant in Converge should look different than the other churches that we're planting. It's, in fact, it's a chance for us to try things out that work in our churches and then other churches to pick those things up. A very small, ridiculous uh, example. When we started, uh, we started doing our question of the daytime. Now we have COVID and we can't you know, have you guys getting up and talking to each other. But we just stopped our service for five minutes right in the middle of it, gave everybody something to talk about, and told everybody to go talk to people. And we know that that introverts hated that. But we just said, hey, if you're an introvert, I love you. I'm not doing this to hurt you. I'm doing this to create community in the church. We don't want you to slip in and slip out without talking to anyone. That's not, we're not okay with it. We love community. And so we're just going to kind of force this just a little bit. And you know what happened? Everybody loved it. I looked around the room, everybody talking for five minutes, getting to know a new person every single week. I had other churches tell me, that will not work. That's a terrible idea. You're going to ruin your church. It's going to be awful. We hate you. Stop it. Well, maybe not. Um, and now there's a couple churches of people who have come to visit ours, who've seen it work, think it's great, and taken it back to their church. Like, we're an incubator. We try things. The next church plant tries things. We're going to always change the way we do stuff to reach people, to create more community. But the message, the form of the church, it's sealed. It's pretty much set. This is what a church looks like. And we're going to spend later on this year in Acts looking at what the purpose of the church is in the fall. And I'm really excited to kind of dig back in and say, what is this supposed to be about? Let's make sure we're doing it right. We're on the right trajectory here. Um, And so he says, I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running in vain. I want to make sure that what I've been doing for the last 14 years, setting up this church, and I've been watching Gentiles non-Jewish people accept Jesus, receive the Holy Spirit. It seems like God is at work, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. And so he goes to see them, and they have quite the debate. And they land on Paul and Barnabas' side. They decide that they're right, that in fact there should be a very low bar to coming into the kingdom. The gospel should be for everyone. It should be easy 
to receive Jesus. That the cost of entry is essentially you saying, I give up and I want Jesus to be my salvation. Okay? There is no other prerequisites that come along with that. It's just faith in Christ for your salvation. That's the core of the gospel in its most simple form. And they agree that we shouldn't throw circumcision on top of that or dietary laws on top of that or you know, that people don't have to have their lives together before they come and join the church. And we still, as religious people, struggle with some of those things. This debate is not something that is completely over. It's something we slide into when we start forgetting about what the church is supposed to be about and how the gospel applies to people. And we start saying, well, that's great. You can come and join our group when you get this together or that together or you don't look like that or you don't say this or you look this way or you do that thing. Any one of those things, Paul says, if you add anything to the gospel, you have nothing. The gospel alone plus nothing is everything. They agree on it. So Paul goes on. He says, not Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. Paul was really smart. He took somebody who was a non-Jewish person who was not circumcised, who had the Holy Spirit in their life, who had been doing ministry for years in the Antioch church, and said, make a case why this guy isn't a believer. Pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty, pretty great move by Paul. He says, we didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. He says, I wasn't starstruck by Peter and James and John because they're just people. They're just people. The pastors that we look up to, that we put on pedestals, we're doing them a disservice. They're just people. They make mistakes. They don't always have it right. Sometimes they do the wrong thing. Sometimes, mostly, hopefully, they're following Jesus' lead and the Holy Spirit's lead and the wisdom that's around them. And they're sensitive to the Spirit and they're wise and they're doing everything they can to follow Jesus in the best way possible. But sometimes those humans still get it wrong. There isn't a special uh, allotment of perfection given to someone who's a pastor or a priest or a whatever. In fact, some of the worst situations are when pastors are faking it, protecting themselves, not allowing people to be in, trying to act like they know everything. That sense of humility has to be there to lead well. It's something that we really value here, right? I mean, I'm not ever standing up in front of you saying I have this all figured out. We're working on it, and I'm listening to wise people in our church. And we have a staff of people who feed into everything that we do and have a say in everything we do. We have a leadership team that we've been building for a year, that is now speaking into most of the stuff that's going on in our church. We will, in the next year, have a whole governance. It's super fun to put together the governance of your church, by the way. Uh, There'll be members. People will get the vote. There'd be, like, all kinds of fun. I just put myself to sleep. So, humility is part of what we do not taking ourselves too seriously, not thinking that we are God's gift to anything, just knowing that we were called to something and we're going to go forward and try to do it. And we're going to listen to God's call and we're going to push forward and we're going to try to make it happen. And he says, I went to them. I wasn't overly starstruck with who they were uh, because God doesn't show favoritism. And he says, they added nothing to my message. My message was pure and they agreed it was right. So he basically checks all of the Uh, pastors who are in charge of the church in Jerusalem. And you're like, okay, well, what were they doing? He says, 
verse 7. On the contrary, they recognized I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised. So the uh, Gentile, uncircumcised, or non-Jewish person, those all mean the same thing, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle of the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish, non-religious people. By the way, if you ask me what my call is in ministry, I will tell you I am much more comfortable with non-religious people than I am with, uh, with religious people. Just no offense to you. I love you. You are amazing. But for whatever reason, I always have felt like God has called me to the people who are furthest away from the gospel. You know? And what's beautiful about that is that not every person in our church is wired that way. I will probably not be the guy that handholds a believer into getting with the program. That's what I got Aaron for now. He's going to do that. You ready for that, buddy? I will probably be the one who's out reaching the person who's as far from Christ as you, you can find. That, that's just my personal call. And P- Paul says, hey, I had a call to people who were far from God, who weren't religious, who didn't grow up in the system, which is funny because he grew up in the system. He was the most religious. He, he knew what that life was, and he started to reach out to people far from that. Peter had grown up in that, been with Jesus, and now he had been leading the church of the most religious people, trying to help them wrap their minds around it. And what I want you to know is that both types of these groups of people still need to wrap their mind around the gospel and respond to the gospel and, you know, be humble in their situation, come at it in the same way. But there can be different calls that people have, okay? As a church planter, my call is to the people who are very far. One of our one of our uh, values is to be thinking about people who aren't here yet. It's one of the things that I probably am most about on our staff of somebody who's going, great, how does that work for our people? And I'm going to go, well, how does it work for people who aren't here yet? That's, that's my role. And we have a lot of people thinking about, well, how does that disciple our people, take care of our people? And I'm all for it. I, I love you. I want to take care of you. Don't get me wrong. But I also want to reach those people who are really far from Jesus. So he says, James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they, uh, and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And the church in that day was very much known for this specific thing. They weren't adding the poor do the stuff with the poor, help the poor, to the gospel. They were saying the thing about your community should be that you care about the poor. And this continues for centuries. In the fourth century, the emperor Julian is talking about Christians. He hates Christians. And he says, I hate Christians. I'm going to paraphrase this for you. You can look it up later if you want. They're super annoying. Not only is none of their church beggars because they take care of their own poor, but they're also super annoying because they take care of all our poor and make us look terrible. The church was so much about caring for the, the needs of the community around the church that that was what they were all about, that that was the, the thing that set them apart in their community. And so they get it right here. They say, okay, we're not going to add anything to the gospel. Just make sure your church continues to care for the poor, that your community cares about what's going on in your neighborhood. We care about what's going on in our neighborhood. We are actively involved with Ralph Reader Food Shelf, who's providing for the needs of people in our community. We didn't even recreate that. We got alongside of somebody already doing it. The Quincy House is another ministry that we, we serve in this area. They are reaching the most needy teens in our area, uh, the ones who are most at risk. We're right alongside them working with them. We, not during COVID, obviously, 
But last fall, the fall before COVID, is that like a thing, like PC, pre-COVID? The fall PC, uh, we we had an amazing event here at the community center where we, we served 650 people a free farmer's market, lunch, and access to all of the county services that are available to people who are struggling or have. We, we cannot wait to get that back up going as soon as people are comfortable being around 650 people, right? We care about this. It's really important. It was important to them too. It's important to the church. So Galatians 2.11, when Cephas came to Antioch, so at some point in there, Cephas, this is Peter, by the way, they go back and forth between the names. Don't be confused by it. He says, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Beautiful that Paul is like, I don't care that you're Peter. I will be right up in your face when you're getting it wrong and challenges him directly in front of everyone. Okay, Sometimes it's important enough to do that. He makes kind of a spectacle. He says, for before certain men came from James, they used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision. So he paints a picture of Peter knowing that he's supposed to reach people who are far from God and eating with them and being in relationship with them. And then because he's afraid of some power brokers in his church, he now starts to pull away from non-spiritual, the the sort of non-Jewish people, and he doesn't want to eat with them because eating with somebody in that culture, meant that you were accepting them completely, okay? So it meant, like, you're in relationship with somebody, and if you eat with them, it seals the deal and says, these are your people. And so Peter went from eating with the people who are far from God to being worried about the power brokers in his church, and he started to draw away from the people who weren't Jewish in his church. And what do you think happens when a leader starts to make a terrible choice like that and then pulls away from those people? What do you think happens? The rest of the church started to follow along, take his lead, do the things When we're leading, sometimes we don't realize this, but everybody in the room is picking up on our cues and is following us. You might be a leader at work. You might be a leader in, you know, maybe you're, uh, you know, in some sort of activities. You find yourself in a position of leadership. You have to pay attention to how you are operating in front of everyone because they will pick up your cues and start to do the things that you do. If you set bad trends for the rest of your congregation, church, group, whatever it is, they'll start to follow you down that path road. And Paul says, you have it wrong, and he challenges him to his, his face on it. He says the other Jews, the ones who were following Peter, joined him in this hypocrisy, and they got so far down the road that even Barnabas, even our, our brother of encouragement, started to follow the leadership down the road, and they were led astray to avoid having a relationship with people who weren't Jewish. This is where we start to see that split happening in the church. And Paul's like, I'm putting this back together and we are unifying this today. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of them all, you're a Jew, you live like a Gentile. He's like, you're a Jewish person, you eat bacon, you wear two different types of fabrics. He's like, you started to enjoy some of the other pieces of not being a Jewish person. By the way, if you don't realize this... um, I think the reason that bacon tastes so good is because we were not allowed to eat bacon before Jesus came, and Jesus set that right, okay? Peter is enjoying being a non-Jew in many areas of his life, but what he's not doing is fully accepting the non-Jews in his congregation. 
Now, it's super uncomfortable because just play this, this scenario out today. You have somebody who comes into your church and they make you uncomfortable. They might have different philosophy than you on how they run their life, the things that are important to them. Again, their politics, their decisions on what to do in certain areas of their life might make you feel uncomfortable. And yet, the church receives people where they're at, points them towards the gospel, and walks alongside of them until we start to see sanctification in their life, which we talked about last week. It's just becoming more like Jesus over time. And we're supposed to receive and sit in that tension and feel that uncomfort until God begins to change their hearts and their lives. It's hard. We would love to be a church that's all homogenous. We all look alike. We all think alike. We all talk alike. That would be the most comfortable version of community that we could create, and that is not what we're called to do in the church. We're called to live in the tension, to sit down in it, to accept people, to love them when they're, you know, all kinds of a mess. When they're a hot mess, they should be most welcome in our church. Yet we find ourselves wanting to hold them to the standards that we ourselves have learned as we have been sanctified in our relationship with Jesus. We're all on a spectrum. No matter where you are on the spectrum, you're received into this church. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to affirm every single thing that you do in your life. In fact, there are going to be many places in your life where I'm going to challenge you with this very gospel that says, please don't live in this way because it is not the fullest possible life that you can live, the one that Jesus wants to give you. We won't shy away from challenging people but we'll receive them and point them towards the gospel in all of their glory of hot messiness. That's what it looks like. And it's, it's tense. The tension is thick sometimes. It's hard. It's, you know, I don't really want my kids around that person. I don't really want to be in community with these people. I don't really want that in my life. I'm uncomfortable with it. And in this case... These people weren't even doing anything wrong, and yet they still had this problem. Okay, for us, it's a little bit more uh, of receiving people, and for them, it was a little bit more of fully accepting people. He says, I said to Cephas in front of everyone, you are a Jew, you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He says, you aren't following Jewish customs, yet you're forcing them to follow specific ones It doesn't make any sense. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. But in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For though the law, sorry, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And put this in perspective, sorry, Paul has lived the law as well as anyone has. He talked about it in the last chapter. that He basically set the standard in his community for somebody who followed the law. He did it perfectly. He did it zealously. He followed every single command to the T, to the letter of the law. And he's standing here saying, even if you did it as perfectly as I did it, it still does not justify you. It does not give you right standing in God's presence. It doesn't give you eternal life. It doesn't save you. It's not something that can operate in that way. And the Jews are still trying to hold on to some of these things, saying these are the things that need to be there in order to be saved. Jesus is saying, no. Faith in Christ alone. That's it. That's what it looks like. 
Paul says, I died to the law. I gave up the law. I know it doesn't work. I've tried it out. You couldn't try it out in a way that would be better than what I, I did. You aren't enough of a true believer. You aren't perfect enough for the law to work. And if you think the law works, then why are you worshiping Jesus? Go ahead. Give it a try. You'll be guilty before the day is over. So Paul says, it's not going to work, and I'm not going to stand for it. Galatians 2.20, you may have memorized this verse. might be one that is uh, known you know, as much as almost any verse. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He says, if it was possible, I would have accomplished it. It's not possible. And yet, it's something we still deal with on a regular basis. And I'm going to had somebody come to my house about a year ago, and they wanted to talk about uh, following their religion. You know, these people that knock on the door, and they have the name tag, and they're riding a bike. I don't really get all the things that go along with it. Uh, and of course, I love this whenever I can get into conversations with someone else. I mean, to me, you know, guys, you guys don't know my personality profile. Actually, Mandy could tell you a whole lot about my personality, because she does the personalities for the uh, Converge, and they did a deep one on me. And one of the things that is different about me than most people is I actually really love to argue with people. Um, so come at me. So this guy shows up in my church and or at my house. Oh, yeah. Um, and he says, uh, hey, I, I really want to talk to you about our faith. And I'm like, yeah, tell me all about it. Tell me about your faith. And uh, he says, listen, you know, we believe this and that. We'd like to invite you to this thing. We want you to come to our Thing I go, yeah, tell me about it. This is great. And then I just start asking questions. And we get to the point where he says um, something to the effect of, uh, you know, I start talking about Jesus and the gospel, and I start talking about grace and mercy, and I start talking about forgiveness and relationship with God. And he gets to a point where he basically says to me, yeah, we believe the same thing. We are on the same page. We believe the same thing about Jesus. And I said, no, we, we really don't. I was like, because... I believe Jesus was eternal, not created. And I believe that Jesus uh, is different than anything that's ever existed in our world. That, that it's not a situation of him being created, the firstborn among all creation and brothers to all the rest of us. Who, and I believe that the gospel is actually very pure in what it offers to people and that it doesn't require this, that, and the other thing. And I believe that the revelation of God was finished when the Bible was written and there was no chance for something else to be tacked on at any other point. And I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. We don't believe the same thing at all. This person continued arguing me, no, we believe the same thing. We trust in Jesus. And I said, I don't think we, we believe in the same Jesus. Pretty sure the Jesus that you're telling me that you believe in is different than the one that's written about in Scripture. And so then I'm whipping out a Bible and I'm reading stuff off of the Bible and I'm talking about how Jesus was the Word and the Word was with God and everything was created through the Word and He's not who you think He is. And I, wanted, I was thinking about this. I think every cult out there, everything that 
masquerades as a religion that can save you, a lot of them are insidious. A lot of them are saying, yeah, we believe in Jesus. We think the gospel is great. But also, here's a couple of other new things that we've had revelation for, or things that are different that you need to add on to your religion. That's easy. We can knock that one down quick. We could say, this is not the same as this. Where this becomes difficult is when we find ourselves in a church with people that we love, or we grew up in this tradition, or this was the experience we had when we were kids, and what we really are in is a place that preaches a gospel plus behavior, or a gospel plus some other thing. Those are much harder to to sort of suss out, to try to find, to figure out. If you're not in a church that lives in the tension of how impossible of a situation grace puts you in sometimes, then you aren't doing it right. Paul is going to go on in the next chapter and the next chapter to say, like, grace should make you feel unbelievably uncomfortable. If you feel good about receiving people all the time, then you're probably receiving the people just like you. And if you're willing to argue for grace of Christ, faith in Jesus, plus something else, you could be missing it. The church that I grew up in, I believe, was well-intentioned. I loved the people that I grew up with. I think the church made some difference in the world for the gospel. But I do believe that there was a figure out how to behave and meet our standards before we receive you. It, if you were going to put it like, you know, the illustration I would always use when I was working in youth ministry was, was like a train, right? And the, uh, the uh, front of the train, the engine of the train was, uh, you know, behave, believe, belong. It was get your life together, accept Jesus, and now we're going to let you be part of what we're doing. I don't think that that's always the right thing with what I'm reading here and how Paul is talking about it. Oftentimes, we receive people, and they're messy, and it makes us feel incredibly uncomfortable. What should be on the front of the train is belong, then believe, then behave. It doesn't mean that we don't call each other as Christians out to live out the gospel in a way that changes us. In fact, if you haven't changed at all in the last 10 years or 5 years or 2 years or a year, you probably also aren't doing it right. You should always be becoming sanctified. That should always be part of what's going on in your world. But as a church, we need to make sure that we are pushing towards grace to receive people whether they have it together or not. And that is essentially what's at risk here in this passage. And what this leads to is two different types of churches. Okay? One that says we're going to be homogenous and receive good boys and girls once they've figured out how to act. And one that says we're going to just throw our arms around messy people and we're going to walk with them until they know Jesus. And then we're going to encourage them until their life is completely changed by the gospel. To me, we're going in this direction. And I want you to understand that means a lot of messiness and a lot of tension. A lot of times you may feel uncomfortable. Okay? But that is the call to a church that's following the full Gospel, not tacking anything on, not expecting anything of people, just saying faith alone in Jesus is what saves you. Not behavior, not going through the hoops of being like us, of knowing Jesus and allowing him to change you over 
over time. I believe that's what we're called to. This tension has not gone away in 2,000 years, and I think it will still be here in 2,000 more years. The situations and the problems will be different. The culture around us that completely changes and keeps going in one direction, we're over here you know, building a counterculture of people who follow after Jesus. We're gonna, that counterculture is going to continue to look different in response to the culture going in a certain direction, and we're going to have different. So right now, we're, we're struggling with all kinds of things that we won't probably struggle with in 2,000 years, but it'll be something else. This tension is always going to be there. It's something we have to manage as a church. And so we have to remind ourselves we're here to receive people at their messiest, point them towards Jesus, and then hold on while they start to change and become who God has called them to, to be. We have to get that right. That order has to be right. All right, that's chapter two. Let me, let me pray for us, and then, uh, yeah, let me pray for us. Jesus, uh, would you just give us your heart for people? You love messy people. You love difficult people. You love people who aren't religious, who are far away from you, who don't have it figured out, and you make space for them. God, I pray that we would both be the kind of community that throws our arms around those kinds of people and also the kind of community that calls people to respond to the gospel and be sanctified by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Would you help us to sit in that tension, allow for that tension to be always present as we apply the gospel to people's lives. I pray this would be the kind of place where someone walks in and feels like they are home, no matter where they come from, no matter what's going on in their world. We ask, God, that you would grow this church with people who need to be discipled. We ask that you would grow this church with people who are far from you. Jesus, would you use us, would you give us the honor of being the the people who come alongside those and walk them into spiritual maturity? Help us to keep that straight focus on this gospel and the purity of it. In Jesus' name, amen.